should make a follow-up comment about books. I have plenty of books in my library at home. I do not need any more. My wife would uh, agree with that. And, uh, but I have many books because I know the great benefit of books. Uh, I have learned so much about the scriptures as a result of holy men and women guided by the Holy Spirit to put their thoughts into print. And, uh, and so I commend these books to you. Uh, do not leave them here. If someone is giving away free books, do not think that undervalues them uh, because they are free. Uh, learn about the Ten Commandments from Kevin DeYoung and learn how to pray in public. Um, I think the comment was made, if you struggle to pray in public, uh, borrow, uh, take the book. Uh, but I think if we are honest, we all struggle to pray. Uh, not just in public, but in private. And we're always looking for help uh, from uh, the Lord and also from his people as to how we can pray uh, more appropriately. And so I encourage you, take the books that are here. Uh, don't knock a free gift in the... Oh, what's the expression? Um, in the face? No, I can't remember. All right. Uh, but before uh, we look at God's word again, I also wanted to make a quick comment about uh, Chris and thank, and thank you for lending your pastor to... Moyne today. Uh, this very kind of you to give him up and allow me to come here. We were at a Banner of Truth conference this last week and it's just so much easier than preparing a fresh sermon uh, whilst trying to attend a conference and distracted uh, that we can just swap pulpits and preach a uh, sermon that we've already preached at our own churches uh, somewhere else. If a sermon is a good sermon and worth preaching once, it's also worth preaching again, and so it's a good opportunity for us to do this. And I also want to thank you uh, for lending your pastor to me in so many ways. He is your pastor, uh, Chris, but he's also a pastor to me. He's a good friend, but he's a good shepherd to me, and even in this last conference, uh, once again, he was being a shepherd to me and encouraging me, and, uh, and he's been uh, a great blessing to me. And so thank you for lending him to me. He does come and meet with me and spend time, uh, which is technically your time, uh, for me and for the work at Moine, and so thank you for that. Uh, let's ask God for his help as we look at his word together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would send the Holy Spirit to us now as we consider our ways, and Lord, we pray that as we consider our ways, we would turn to your word and look at the way that you would have us walk. And so, Lord, we pray that, we would, uh, that you would guide our steps according to your word as a result of looking at it this morning together. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this morning I want to look at this passage that is before us from Matthew chapter 4. If you've got a Bible, I encourage you to have it open before you. Matthew chapter 4, and we'll be looking at the temptations of Christ. Now, these come as the, at the beginning of Christ's ministry. In chapter 3 of Matthew's Gospel, you see John the Baptist's ministry. And then at the end of uh, chapter 3, you see how John's ministry overlaps with Jesus' ministry, in that Jesus comes to John and is baptised. And then immediately after that, we see that the first work of the Lord Jesus is to go out into the desert. And we see that in verse 1 and 2 of chapter 4 of Matthew's Gospel. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. So what is the first work of Jesus in his ministry? Well, it's to go out into the desert and to fast. Fast for 40 days and 40 nights. And while he is there, part of his first work is to be tempted by the devil. Uh, the devil tempts people to sin, but this is also a time of testing for the Lord Jesus. Uh, we understand that the word that is used as translated here as tempting uh, can also be translated as testing. 
depending on the way that the action is being performed and who is performing the action. And so we see that the Holy Spirit is testing Jesus here. In verse 1 it says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit. Uh, the Spirit wanted Jesus to go out into the desert to be tested. And so when the devil tempts someone, he's tempting them to sin. When the Lord tests someone, he's testing their faith in him. And so this is a time of testing and a time of temptation that Satan is bringing upon the Lord Jesus. And so what's this first temptation that the Lord Jesus faces from the devil? And that's the one that we'll be looking at today. There are three temptations all up, but we're looking at the first temptation this morning. And the first one is given to us in verse 3. Verse 3 of Matthew chapter 4 reads, The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. What's the first temptation? Well, it's to turn stones into bread. Now, does this seem like a real temptation? Does it seem like something that is a real temptation to sin? After all, doesn't God want us to eat food? Is it sinful to want to eat some bread and to actually eat some bread? And doesn't Jesus produce food miraculously at other points in his life? Doesn't he turn water into wine? Doesn't he turn a few loaves and fish into many loaves and fish miraculously? So why is it wrong here to turn bread, uh, turn stones into bread? Why is this a temptation? How could this be sinful? Well, I think the key words that we need to note in the temptation come at the very beginning of the temptation. Look with me again at verse 3 of Matthew chapter 4. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. What is preface to this temptation of turning stones into bread? It is the phrase, if you are the Son of God. What is Satan doing then with this first temptation? Well, he's doing what Satan does best. And what is that? He's encouraging unbelief in God. Unbelief in God and in God's word. Now, why is that the case? Why is that the case that here we see that Satan is encouraging unbelief in God and his word? Well, to understand, I think we, to really understand all the temptations that Jesus faces, I think we actually have to go back to chapter 3. Back to chapter 3 of Matthew's Gospel and see what happens immediately prior to Jesus' temptations. What is that? Well, we see his baptism. We see him being baptized by John. John at first is reluctant to do it, but he says, let us do this to fulfill all righteousness. And then he is baptized. And then what happens? As he comes up out of the water... What happens? The Holy Spirit descends upon him like a dove. We read that in verse, eight, uh, verse 16 of Matthew chapter 3. Verse 16 says, As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. But what else happened? What happened after that? Verse 17. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. God the Father spoke from heaven and declared that Jesus of Nazareth is his son. And not just his son, he is the son whom he loves. And not just the son whom he loves, but the son whom he is well pleased with. And so what is Satan doing? Satan is trying to get Jesus to doubt that declaration from heaven that he is God's son. He's getting him to doubt the word of God. He's saying, if you are the son of God, turn these stones to bread. 
He's wanting him to doubt that he is God's beloved son. And how is he doing it? Well, he's using food. Now, why would he use food? Why would Satan use food to try and get Jesus to doubt whether he is the son of God? Well, Satan knows that humans need food to survive. That one of the most basic things about humans is their desire for food in order to survive. And he knows that people often sin in order to live, in order to have food. He knows that hunger pains drive people to commit truly awful sin at times. They can even murder someone just so that they can satisfy their hunger pains. Someone who is gentle, meek and mild the rest of their life, if they are truly hungry, really hungry and worried they're not going to survive, they will do terrible things. And even if they're just mildly hungry, they can do awful things. Satan has seen this work before. What's an example? Esau in the Old Testament. Classic example. Sold his birthright for stew. Was willing to give up his birthright for stew, for lentil stew. I've never had lentil stew, I believe, but from what I've heard, it's, a, it's not like a high-grade level stew. But he was willing to give up his birthright for stew. Now, is Jesus hungry here? Is he someone that would be open to a temptation to get food, to sin in order to receive food? No, Jesus isn't hungry here. He is starving. And we're told that in verse 2. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And this isn't the 40 days, uh, 40 days of fasting, or when we think it's 40 days of fasting and 40 nights of fasting. If you think of the Muslim Ramadan, what do they do? They do the month of fasting, but the evenings of feasting. They make up for what they lack in the day at night. Jesus is not doing that. I'm try- I've tried to consider what it would look like to see Jesus after 40 days of not eating. And I'm sure he wasn't overweight when he went into the desert. He would have been a man of great self-control generally speaking. And so he would have been close to death's door. He would have been emaciated. He would have looked terrible to us. He is starving. And therefore, Satan comes and tempts him to create food from stones, to turn stones into food. And Satan knows that this works for many people. And not only because of the hunger pains there, but because humans find food pleasurable. He knows that humans love to taste certain foods and bread being high up on the list. We all generally like our bread. And it's worked in the past to give something that is desirable to someone that looks good for food, that tastes good in order to sin. Who am I talking about? Well, we go right back to the Garden of Eden. And what do we read about Eve in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6? It says, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye... And also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. It wasn't that she was starving, she had all the luxuries of the garden, but she saw the food, and it wasn't food that looked undesirable, she desired it, and she sinned as a result, and transgressed God's command not to eat from that tree. But then why connect food with Jesus being the Son of God? How is this a particular temptation Having God as his father, how is that then a temptation? How is the temptation of food linked to the fatherhood of God? 
Well, Satan knows that every human knows that every good parent provides food for their children. It's almost impossible for a mother to hear the cry of a baby, a hunger cry of a baby, and not try and satisfy it in some way. Even if it's not quite the routine time, the food time that they may have worked out for the baby, if they know the baby is really hungry, they will try and satisfy it. A good parent makes sure their children are well-fed. Humans all know that well-fed kids are well-loved kids. And the Bible even teaches this. We open the service with Psalm 37. And verse 25 says, I was young and now I am old, yet I've never seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging bread. Different ways that that could be fulfilled. One of the ways is that children of the righteous are fed. That the parents don't take their money and gamble it away. They make sure that there's sufficient food in the house for their children. And in a few chapters over, Jesus is going to teach what in the Sermon in the Mount? He's going to teach about the goodness of fathers, even though they're evil. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 9, he says, Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? He says, You are evil people, yet you know to give your children food. And so we connect well-fed children with loving, good parents. So what is Satan doing here in Matthew chapter 4? Well, he's saying that if Jesus is starving in the desert, then the question is easily raised. Can Jesus really be God's son? Look at you, he's saying to Jesus. Can you really be the son of God when you are starving in the desert? Or if you are God's son, can God really love you? Are you his beloved son? Is he really well pleased with you? Look at your state that you're in. How can you say you are God's son and God's son who is beloved and God's son with whom God is pleased? What's Satan want Jesus to believe? He wants Satan to believe either God isn't a good father or Jesus isn't God's son because of the state of his stomach. Unless, Satan proposes, Jesus is able to make bread miraculously, that would then prove that God is your father, wouldn't it? Because then you would have food to eat. That he would give you the power to make the bread that you so much deserve as a child of God. But if Jesus was to make that bread... What would that mean? Jesus would be trusting his stomach to prove that he is a child of God rather than God's word. And so what does Jesus do? Jesus trusts God's work and he rebukes Satan with scripture. What scripture? Well, we read in verse 4. It says, verse 4, Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. What is the context of this? He's quoting from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter uh, 8, which we had read for us before. Well, the context is the children of Israel, they've been in the wilderness, they've been receiving manna from heaven, bread from God himself, as they've been wandering in the desert. 
But what does the other half of that verse say back in Deuteronomy chapter 8? Well, the beginning of the verse says, Moses is speaking to the people of God and he says, He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Moses is teaching that the reason the Israelites had hunger in the first place and then were satisfied by manna was so that they would know that the word of God is what we ultimately live on. And so by choosing this verse, Jesus is responding to Satan's accusation that he mustn't be a child of God if he is starving. Even if Satan was to say, look at the children of God in the Old Testament. They were shown to be children of God by the way that God provided manna from heaven. And here you are in the desert, Jesus, and you've got nothing. They wandered around for 40 years and had food. You, here 40 days, and you've got nothing. Can you really be a child of God? But Jesus is saying, if you're implying that, Satan, understand that God provided his children with food so that they would trust his word. That is what they were supposed to do, not to trust in food as to whether they are God's children. They were to understand that physical food teaches us that we ultimately live on God's word, not on physical food. And it is true. How is it true? How is God's word nourishing to us? Well, physical food is only nourishing because God sustains both the food and the person eating it by his decree, by his word. What do I mean? Well, the only reason chemicals in your stomach that you ingest through food actually sustain you in any way is because God decreed it so many years ago when he created this world. He put the principles in place that we embrace every day and we then eat and we expect the chemicals to nourish us. And it's all because God has decreed it and continues to sustain it by his powerful word, that process. And then, of course, how does the word of God cause us to live? Well... It's only through the word of God that we receive eternal life, that we can live forever. It's only as we hear God's word and the path of salvation through his word that we can live forever. So what did Jesus do here in Matthew chapter 4? In that desert so many years ago, he trusted God's word and not his stomach to know that he was God's beloved son. Christ's stomach was not his spiritual thermometer. What was his spiritual thermometer? God's word. Now, how is this helpful for us today? Well, like Eve, we've often doubted God's word because of our stomachs. How? By using our stomachs as spiritual thermometers rather than God's word. How so? By believing that an empty belly means God is displeased with us and may not even be our father. What are we often like? We're like the Israelites in the deserts who hungered and then as soon as they hunger, they grumble against God as though he's not a good father to them. And what else are we like? Well, who else are we like? We're like the Israelites, not just in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament. In John chapter 6, verse 30, uh, sorry, in John chapter 6, we have the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus feeds the 5,000 with physical bread. But what do the people want? What do they say in verse 30 of John chapter 6? They ask Jesus, what miraculous sign then will you give us that we may see it and believe you. What will you do? Our forefathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. You see what they're saying there? What will you give us? What miraculous sign 
i.e. the food that you gave us before, can you keep on giving it to us, so that we will then believe you. We will believe you if you give us food or some other miraculous sign that would really satisfy us. Then we'll believe you. But really, the food is what they're after because they tie it with the Old Testament. Our forefathers ate manna in the desert. Come on, you've done it once before, do it again. And we will then believe you if you fill our stomachs. And we're often like that too. Now, of course, we often have an abundance of food here in Australia. But we're often like children who say, you only love me, Dad, if you'll give me lollies and chocolate and ice cream. We want a particular type of food. Then we'll know that we are truly blessed and God is our Father. But how else have we used our our stomachs as spiritual thermometers? Well, we often use them like the gospel prosperity, the prosperity gospel heretics. How so? By believing that our full stomachs, our full bellies, means God is well pleased with us and blessing us as his children. We think that if I have an abundance of food and money to buy food in the future and abilities to get food, then God really is my father. I can know it. I just look around me, how God has blessed me. I really must be a child of God. But what's the problem? God often speaks of his displeasure with the wealthy and the fat in the Old Testament. Those who are not as thin as others, the full-bellied, he often speaks of his displeasure with them. And what's a good example of both types? A full stomach going to hell and an empty stomach going to heaven. Well, Jesus gives us a good example over in Luke chapter 16. Turn with me to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16, and we'll read from verse 19. Luke chapter 16, verse 19. Luke 16, verse 19, Jesus says, There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here And you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed. So those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. Here we see an example, or two examples. One person who is well fed ends up in hell. One person who's starving and ends up in paradise. So then how do we know if we are the children of God? How do we know if we're beloved of God? How do we know that God is well pleased with us? If God says so. If God says, you are my child. If God says, 
you're my child whom I love. If God says you're my child whom I love and with you I'm well pleased, then it is so. So then how do we know? What's our spiritual thermometer? It's got to be God's word, not our stomachs. Lean or not so lean. We can't know whether we're a child of God by our stomachs. But instead it is by looking at the word of God. And now then, what does God's word say? Who does God's word say are his children? Who are those whom he loves and is well pleased with? Well, the Bible is explicitly clear, very clear, that it is those who are in Christ Jesus. Why in Christ Jesus? Why not in ourselves and our own works that those that we are children of God? Well, our birthright was sold for food thousands of years ago by our first parents, Adam and Eve. They sold it for food. Our birthright, our access to God, our status as children of God. We were children of God, but then we lost it for food. Our parents sold it for food. And then, of course, we have as well. We, like Esau, have sold it too. Every time we have sinned in order to gain something, in order to buy food or do something so that we'd have a job so that we could buy food, we have sold our birthright as well. So then why Jesus? Well, it's because he never trusted God on the basis of his belly, but always trusted God on the basis of his word. And therefore, all those who are in Christ Jesus by faith in him, all those who trust him are children of God. If you trust in Christ Jesus, then you are in Christ. You have union with Christ and all his work of resisting Satan and trusting God and God's word while he was here on earth is put over to your account. It's a wonderful verses given to us in John 1 verse 12 and 13. It says, yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he, that is Jesus, gave the right to become children of God. God. Children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Trusting in Christ is like what? It's like feeding on Christ as the bread of heaven. The bread of heaven, the word of God become flesh. To the Israelites wanting bread in John chapter 6, what did Jesus say? He said, I tell you the truth, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, from now on, give us this bread. Give us this bread that gives eternal life. And then what does Jesus declare? I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. So what's the result for those who believe in Jesus Christ, who trust in Jesus? Are they guaranteed full body and bellies now? Is that the guarantee that Jesus gives? No. Maybe you'll have a full belly in this life. Maybe not. But what does God guarantee? He guarantees that you will have eternally full bellies in heaven. That's what Jesus got. And so will we if we trust in him. God's word promises that those in heaven, never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. It says in Revelation chapter 7, verse 16. So my question for you this morning is, 
Have you used your belly, your stomach, as a spiritual thermometer? Have you used your bank account, your paycheck, that will get you physical food as your spiritual thermometer as to where you stand in relationship with God? Do you distrust God because you don't have a full belly? You don't have a full bank account and you're inclined to think that he is not your father. (coughs) Think again. Why? Jesus was God's son and is God's son. And Jesus knew what it was to be starving. I mean really starving in a way that I don't think anyone in this room will ever know or has known. Yet he was God's son, starving for 40 days and 40 nights. Or conversely, do you think that everything is going to be okay for you? Because you have a full belly and a pretty big bank account. And so therefore, God must be your father and God must love you and God must be well pleased with you. If that is you, think again. Why? Jesus was God's son and Jesus knew what it was to be starving. So what should we do? Well, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we should trust God and his word, which tells us to believe in Jesus Christ in order to be children of God. So therefore, let us have full stomachs of Jesus as the bread of life, the bread of heaven, the word of God that has become flesh. That if we feed on that word, we will live forever. Let us have stomachs full of the promises of God contained in his word as our daily bread with the Spirit's help. Feed upon his word each day. Remembering that the purpose of physical hunger that we don't know that well, generally speaking, unless you really try to feel it, is meant to point you to the fact that you're supposed to hunger for spiritual food, hunger for the scriptures, and of course, the word become flesh, Jesus Christ himself. Spiritual stomachs are the only stomachs that should be our spiritual thermometers, and spiritual stomachs should be filled with Jesus Christ and God's word. Let us fill our stomachs with these, Jesus and the word of God, so that we know that we are children of God. If you've never trusted in Jesus before, feed on him now before it's too late. This is my encouragement to you this morning. If you've never fed on Jesus before, if you've never trusted in Jesus, then you are starving right now. You may not recognise it because you have a full physical stomach, but your spiritual stomach is starving. Feed on him now before you continue to starve now in this world and then starve for all eternity. And then join God's people in rejoicing in the peace that we have because God says we are his children and it is so because he has said it. Just as he declared from heaven so many years ago to Jesus, you are my son whom I love, with you am I well pleased. And Jesus would have rejoiced in that truth, that declaration from God, that word of God from heaven throughout his entire ministry, not just for the temptations, but of course going to the cross and enduring even greater temptation there. This is really just round one in the desert. The great round is still to come. But it was the word of God, knowing that he was God's son and God was pleased with him even as he suffered 
that led him to endure. And so therefore we can have that joyous peace that was in Christ's heart and endure anything that comes our way because we know God has declared that if you trust in him, then you are his child and he is pleased with you. And so we can rejoice now and we can rejoice in looking forward to the heavenly life where there will be no hunger, there will be no thirst at all. Let us come to God in prayer. Let us speak with him now. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your kindness in giving us your word. We ask that you would forgive us for not trusting you and your word as Christ trusted you, you and your word. Oh Lord, we confess that so often we've doubted your word. And we've doubted simply because of what we do not have. And so, Lord, we come before you and ask for forgiveness. And we come and we thank you that forgiveness is found in Christ Jesus. We thank you for giving him to us. And we ask that you would help us to not measure our relationship with you by our stomachs, but to feed on your son and your word by faith more and more. And so, therefore, rejoice in the eternal life that we have in him. And Lord, if there is anyone here this morning who doesn't trust in you, oh Lord, we pray that they would realise their spiritual hunger now, that their spiritual stomach is empty, that it is starving, and that they would feed on Christ now and have eternal life in him. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I invite you now to 